Welcome. You are listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church in Granite Falls, North Carolina. We invite you to join us online or in person for one of our services. For more information about our church, please visit day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life. When I first watched that intro video that uh, Guy Myers put together for us for this series, I, I kind of initially thought, well, what do Lego blocks have to do with James? And then I started thinking, uh, you know, last week, the more I watched that intro, uh, how kids take Lego blocks and build things from them. And that's what God wants to do in our lives. He wants to build us and uh, cause us to be more mature. The theme of the, uh, the book of James is that, it's spiritual maturity. And that's why we've called the series Moving Toward Christian Maturity. If you fail to recognize that or keep that in mind as you read through the book of James, you may very well get confused theologically uh, because it may sound like to you that James is saying that you're saved by works. But the intent of what James writes is spiritual maturity. What Paul writes about, and we'll talk about that some during the message today, was how to become a Christian. The Bible clearly says we become saved, we become Christians by trusting in the finished work of Jesus, plus nothing, minus nothing. It's all by God's grace, through faith in what Jesus did on the cross. But after we receive him as our Savior, God wants to do some things to our lives. He wants there to be works in our lives, and, and that's what... James is dealing with in uh, in this epistle. Some of the themes that uh, we've already started looking at in the book of James, he started out with the first theme being of uh, how you and I need to learn patience or how we need to become more steadfast by uh, going through trials and tribulations, by facing temptation in our lives. Instead of allowing those things to to cause us to be sidetracked, we need to allow those things to build us and strengthen us to where we're more steadfast. He, he also writes in the book of James, the theme that we're on now uh, deals with practicing the truth. And you and I need to practice the truth by, first of all, hearing and doing what God says in James chapter 1, verse 19 through 27. We need to practice the truth through faith and love. In other words, we need to uh, love other people, not just people that are like us. He even gives us an illustration there in the book of James about if a poor person comes in to your worship service and a rich person comes in, he's warning us, you better be careful that you don't elevate the rich person uh, and minimize the, the poor person. Today he's still writing about practicing the truth. That's still the theme of this part of James that we're dealing with. But today, the specific message, I think, deals with this, that we need to practice the truth through a faith that works, through a faith that you and I have in Christ that actually prompts us to have good works in our lives. And that's what we'll be uh, looking at as we look at these, at these verses uh, together. He's kind of still using the illustration about the poor. Because, as you'll see in a few moments, he uh, talks about if, if someone is poor and they're lacking in clothing and lacking in food, and all we do is say to them, well, you be warm and, and you be filled uh, with, with food, and we're not doing anything to alleviate their need, then we're completely missing the point. We're not doing what God wants us to do. 
all we're doing is practicing a faith that involves words, and we're not practicing a faith that actually helps anyone or involves uh, works whatsoever. As we think about practicing the truth today by our works, I want you to notice three types of faith, or three variations of faith that some people hold on to. The first one is this. James calls it a dead faith. And a dead faith is a faith that is merely intellectual. In other words, it's just the kind of faith where someone knows facts about God. They, they know facts about Jesus. They, they might have an intellectual acknowledgement to, to things about God, but nothing's ever changed in their life whatsoever. Look at what he says in verse 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith, that style of faith, that type of faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself does not, that does not have works, if it does not have works, is, is dead. That's what James calls a faith that is just built on a mental ascension, things that you have accepted, things that, that you have acknowledged. He, he says it's an intellectual person who says they have faith. They claim they have faith, but there's no evidence going on in their lives that they actually have faith because nothing is played out in their lives to show that they're following Jesus, to show that they authentically have faith in God. And James calls that a dead type of faith. A dead type of faith is really a, a worthless faith, and it's a useless faith, and it's also a lifeless faith. It's a worthless faith. Next slide, please. Because he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says, if someone claims that they have faith, but they don't have any works? He says, can, can that type of faith save someone? I mean, what benefit is that type of faith? What does it do to help anyone? The, the, some of the words that he uses there in the Hebrew, the word, or in the, in the Greek rather, the word good means to heap up, accumulate, benefit, gain, or advantage. So he's saying if someone only claims they have faith, but they're not any kind of Christian works in their life, what is that heaping up? What advantage is that for anyone? If all they have is words, that they have faith, and they do not have, absolutely do not have, because when you look at the tense that he uses in the Greek, it's not like maybe they have works. He's saying they don't have any works whatsoever. If all they do is claim to have faith, but there's never, ever been any change in their life, there's never been anything in their life that gives evidence by their service to Christ that they know him. He, he's saying what good is that type of, of faith? The way that's phrased in the, uh, in the Greek, uh, what good is it, it's a rhetorical question. And the way, he, the way he asked that and the way it's structured in the Greek sentence, it is anticipating a no answer. In other words, if someone says they have faith, but they never ever have any evidence in their lives that they really have faith, then he's saying there's no benefit whatsoever. It, it does not help 
anyone. It doesn't help anyone else that you might be needing to minister to. It doesn't help to honor Christ in any way whatsoever. It does not help you yourself to grow spiritually if all you have is a faith built on intellect, on knowing some facts about God or Jesus. That type of faith is a worthless type of faith. It, it really concerns me that um, it really concerns me that in this day and time, I, I'm afraid this might be a huge problem in churches. Even in the Bible Belt quotation marks it, of America, because I'm I'm truly afraid that our churches are filled with people week in and week out that say they believe. But there's never, ever been any change in their life, and there's never, ever any evidence in their life that they have really, truly believed in Jesus. Now, this week, as I studied this message, uh, I, I thought you'll, some of you may, uh, may be put on alert a little bit. And, and that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to make you second-guess or challenge your faith today, but if your faith is not authentic, I do hope that the Holy Spirit will challenge your faith. If all you have done is believe some facts about Jesus, and and there's never ever been a time that you experienced a change in your life, and there's not anything going on in your life other than intellectual thoughts that you know Him, but there's never ever any kind of works in your life to prove that out, just maybe you need to ask yourself if your faith is a dead faith. If it's a, a, a faith that's not really authentic. See, sometimes people substitute words for a real relationship with God. And there are people that know the vocabulary. They know the Christian lingo. They know the language. They, they know the words. They might even know Scripture and how to find Scripture and might have even memorized some Scripture. But James is telling us that that's all they have. If all they have is words and there's never, ever been a life change take place, and there's not any kind of works that bear for the evidence that you're authentically a child of God, that you have a dead faith. Now, someone uh, may uh, someone may say, is, this, is the mic working fine? Is it, can you hear it coming out there? I'm not hearing it up here. I'm sorry. When I don't hear myself a little bit, I'm, I feel like I'm having to scream at you. And, uh, and I, I wasn't here myself, so I thought I'd better ask. So I, if I don't have to scream at you, I won't scream at you. And, uh, and all. But uh, someone says I probably need to scream at you. you know. uh, someone may, may think, well, what about the thief on the cross? The thief on the cross that, that trusted in Jesus right before he died. Because he didn't have any good works. And that's true. And you know what? I believe he went to heaven. You want to know why I believe he went to heaven? Because Jesus said he did. He said, you'll be with me today in paradise. But that doesn't give you and I an excuse not to have works in our lives. Because the best that I can tell, you're not nailed to a cross dying right now. Now, if you so much want to get out of the obligation to serve Jesus that you're ready to be nailed on a cross, come on up. We'll go in the back room here. We've got a cross somewhere. We'll take care of it. Anybody want to line up for that? Didn't think so. 
See, you and I have the opportunity. We're not like the thief on the cross. We've got the opportunity to serve Christ. Our life didn't end as soon as we prayed and received him as Savior. You and I have the opportunity and an obligation placed upon us by Scripture to actually care about what he wants, to, to serve him, to be obedient to his will. So the thief on the cross does not give us an excuse why we don't have to serve him. And James is saying if all you have is intellectual knowledge, facts that you've stuck in this old head about Jesus, but there's never ever been anything else happening in your life, then just maybe your faith is dead. Is that a scary thought? That's a worthless type of faith, but it's also a, a useless type of faith. Intellectual faith without works is a useless faith. He goes on, and he said in verse 15 through 16, if, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed or lacking in daily food. Now, I want you to notice, he, he's not saying if a brother or sister did not get their new car, did not get their new house, did not get to go on vacation to Honolulu, He's talking about basic human needs. Some translations say if a brother or sister is naked, in other words, they don't have the clothing, they need to stay warm. And they don't have the food that they need to eat. By the way, he says a brother or sister. So he's talking about if there's someone in our congregation that is suffering like that. And all we do is say to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. He says, what good is that? How does that meet their need? How does that minister to them? That phrase, go in peace, literally means to lead yourself under, to withdraw or retire, as if shrinking out of sight, to go away. And, and, and you yourself maintain a fixed position of peace. So what good is it for us to tell someone like that, that it is in need? What good is it for us to just tell them? What advantage or benefit or gain do they get if we just tell them, you go in peace and you be warmed and you be filled? I mean, it's almost the equivalent of something I think we've all probably been guilty of before. You ever been channel surfing and you come to a channel that shows the starving kids in a foreign land? And you see it, but all of a sudden you think, oop, need to go to the next channel. You being guilty of that? Be honest. That's almost the equivalent of it. But he's saying if it's a brother or sister, if it's a fellow Christian, and we won't meet their needs like that, what in the world are we going to do to people that aren't even Christians? It's like we're telling someone, I don't have time for you. Oh, I, I understand that you've got this need. I understand that, that you're hungry and you're cold, but I really don't have time to mess with it myself. So you just kind of go away and you deal with it yourself and you live in a fixed position of peace yourself. I'm not going to fix it. That, that's the, the mentality that he is, is giving us. And that kind of faith is a, is a useless faith because it does not help anyone it does not benefit anyone whatsoever if we just have the mindset of well you go be warmed and you go be filled it's a useless faith because it did nothing to meet their needs james is challenging us he's saying if all you have is intellectual facts and you never ever minister to someone you, you never ever feel compassion 
for someone, you are falling far short of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Because the ministry of Jesus constantly, 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 he was having compassion for people that had problems in in their lives. Paul tells us this in Galatians chapter 6. Therefore, as we have the opportunity. In other words, when it presents itself, and there the person is that is hungry or cold, and you have not only the time opportunity presented you, but you also have the ministry opportunity. You've got the ability to do something about it. As we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Do you understand a faith that is in words only falls, as I said a moment ago, far short of the compassion of Jesus. Far short of what, of what Jesus desires for us to, to have in, in our lives. John put it like this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17 through 18. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. I'm sorry to say this, but I'm afraid many times the church in America is guilty of this. When someone have real needs, we're guilty of just giving them encouraging words. I'll pray for you. God bless you. Go be filled. Go be warm. And we don't do one thing to meet the need. James is telling us that's not the kind of faith that we need to practice because we need to outflow that we've talked about for weeks now. I will draw your attention to this at the end of the service. But this table you may have walked by for several weeks now out in the connection area. And that's why it's in here today. Because on this table we have some sign-up sheets for some ministry that we're going to do uh, called Operation Inasmuch. And we also have some sign-up sheets for the Relay for Life. And we also have some sign-up sheets on the small black table over here uh, that will... Uh, help at, at the uh, uh, South Caldwell Christian Ministry. And we also have an opportunity over here that you might have seen outside in the connection area that you may have walked by to where we are getting quarters together, where we can go to the laundromat and try and bless people at the laundromat and let them know that Jesus loves them. Now you might be wondering, why are all these things in here? Because today I'm hoping during the invitation time, I'm not trying to twist your arm. I'm hoping the Holy Spirit squeezes your heart. Because during the invitation time, there's going to be an opportunity for you to come up during the invitation and sign up to do something. Sign up to make a difference. Instead of having a, a worthless faith, faith or a useless faith, we, we want you to, to be involved. Intellectual faith is also this. It's a lifeless faith. A lifeless faith. He says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That phrase, faith by itself, in the Greek means faith alone. In other words, there's not any works whatsoever. There's nothing going on except you believe in some facts in your head. John Calvin once wrote this. 
He said it is faith alone that justifies. In other words, it's through faith alone that you are saved. But he goes on and he says, but faith that justifies can never be alone. You understand what he's saying? It is faith in Jesus Christ alone that saves you, but if you're authentically saved, then there's going to be some fruit coming out of your life. There's going to be some ministry happening in your life. There's going to be some deeds, some works that's happening in your life. And if you have the kind of faith that not any works taking place at all, he says that that kind of faith is dead and uses the Greek word necros, which means a corpse. I've never seen a corpse get up and serve anybody of you. I've never seen a corpse help someone be warm or help someone be fed. I've never seen a corpse stand up and worship God. I do know one thing about a corpse, so eventually a corpse will start to stink, right? And I think that may be the problem with the kind of faith that we have in America in this day and time. Our faith stinks to the world around us because all they hear from us is words and what they need to see from us is some work. Some compassionate work touching their lives and making a difference in their lives. He tells us that that kind of faith is dead. See, real faith in Jesus ought to bring forth life. We're told in, in, uh, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 12, that he that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God doesn't have life. If we really have Jesus in our heart, if the gospel seed has been planted in our heart, what ought to happen when you plant a seed? ought to grow. Some of you are involved planting your gardens right now, and you've broken up the ground, and you've put a seed in the ground, and you're expecting it to grow, and you're expecting it to bring forth something that will be beneficial, some kind of fruit, some kind of food that you can eat. And when the Holy Spirit places His Word in our heart, the gospel seed in our heart, God has this anticipation for it to grow and see things from our lives that other people can recognize as authentic, Genuine faith. You ever accidentally grabbed hold of a live wire or some electricity? Kind of lets you know that it's there, doesn't it? During the first service, I, I, I'd use the illustration. I said, you cannot grab hold of 220-volt wire and not be changed. And then I looked across the way, and I thought, oh, I'm, I, you know, there's a guy sitting back there that was electrocuted uh, just a couple of years ago in the first service. So he could tell you that it really changed some things about him. You know what? I, I'm just assuming Jesus is more powerful than a 220-volt wire. And, and if we grab hold of him, that ought to literally change some things in our lives. A lot of people um, will look at James, especially this passage we're dealing with today. They'll, they'll look at James and they'll say, well, it, it sounds like to me James is contradicting Paul. Because Paul says we're justified by faith. And it kind of sounds like Paul is contradicting James. Because James makes it sound like you're, you're justified by works. But 
they're not in disagreement at all. You have to bear in mind the purpose of what was being written. In Romans, Paul is writing how to become a Christian, how to be saved. You are justified not by words, you're justified by faith. James is writing to people who he has been calling brothers and sisters all the way through the epistle. He's writing to people who already were people of faith, and he's telling them, since you're someone of faith, you ought to have works in your life. Two completely different goals that, that he has in writing and what Paul had in, in writing. Let, let, me, let me show you one passage of Scripture that proves that. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, Paul writes these words, For by grace, in other words, God's unmerited favor, there's not anything you can do to earn it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this isn't your own doing. In other words, you didn't clean yourself up, you didn't work hard enough to get it. It's the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast. Now, what did he just tell us? You're saved how? By faith, you're not saved by works. Is that not what he just said? And everyone said, amen. I thank God for that, don't you? But don't stop reading there. Read the next verse. Because in verse 10, he said, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I mean, it's not even that you have to work it up yourself to figure out the good works you ought to do. God has pre-planned for you things that he wants you to do, and he wired you in such a way that you'll find fulfillment doing the stuff that God wants you to do. He's got it pre-planned for you. So are we saved by grace? Yes, we are. But when we are saved by grace, guess what? Along with that wonderful gift of salvation, God has the expectation that you and I would serve him and have good works in our life. Does that help you understand why why James and and Paul are not contradictory to each other? In other words, we, we ought to have more than just our lips flapping in the breeze. We ought to have some works in our life. Helping people to see that we're authentic Christians. So the first type of faith he writes about here is the dead faith. Second type of faith that James writes about is a, a demonic faith. It's a faith that is both intellectual and emotional. Look at verse 18 and 19. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Some translations say you believe in one God. You do well. Even the demons believe in shudder. Some translations say tremble. James, I think, wanted to shock his audience into reality. And if you're someone that's been deceived by the kind of faith that you have living in the Bible Belt of America, I hope that you will be shocked today, maybe, about your faith. He's writing to people that see themselves as believers, claim they have faith, 
But then he tells them the faith that you have might be similar to the faith that demons have. That doesn't sound like a good thing, does it? Like maybe that would shock them just a little bit. It may even shock you this morning to be told that that demons kind of have a type of faith. They don't have saving faith. What demons have is an acknowledgement faith. Demons know for sure, without any question, without any doubt, God is real because they have seen Him. Demons know full well that, that, that Jesus Christ is real. We even have pictures in, in the New Testament of men who are demon-possessed coming up to Jesus and, 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 and recognizing who He is. And saying, please don't banish us to hell forever. Instead, let us go into the pigs. So the demons fully well know who Jesus is, but they know so by, by acknowledgement. So how, how can an intellectual faith be a demonic faith? He said, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons do what? Believe. The fact that God is one is a centralized truth of Judaism. That's one of the reasons why the Jews are really resistant to Christianity or Jesus being the Messiah, because they will say that Jesus can't be God because there's only one God. They believe in something they call the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The thing that the Jews missed was that the word one in the Hebrew means a collective cluster. You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God revealed in three persons. But what James is doing here is this. James is pointing out to them that just acknowledging a creed, just acknowledging a doctrine is not enough to have saving faith. Just to believe facts about God is not enough to save you because the demons believe facts about God. They know without any doubt he is completely and totally real. They are under the conviction that there's one God, but it doesn't save them. Instead, it terrifies them. It makes them shake in their boots because of who he is. They know him, they acknowledge him, they've they've seen him, but they do not trust God for their salvation and they do not serve God. That's how an intellectual faith, someone that only believes in their head about Jesus, but they've never had their life changed and there's no good works to bear evidence that their faith is real, can be a demonic type of faith because the demons acknowledge that he's real. But the demons aren't saved. Because they are not dependent upon the finished work of Jesus for their salvation and because they never, ever, ever serve Him. How can an emotional type faith be a demonic faith? Because James writes and he says, even the demons believe and they shudder or they, they, they tremble. The word that he, that he used there, uh, to start with, when he used the word and, it's a, it has a copulative effect. It's like it's building on something. So he's saying the, 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 the demons 
believe, they have intellectual knowledge, they acknowledge that God is real, and on top of that, they, they even kind of get bristled up or they shudder, they tremble with fear. It's an expression of fear, revulsion, even hatred. It's like James is, is saying this to his readers. He's saying, you claim that you have faith, but your faith isn't even real enough to cause you to shiver. It's not even real enough to where it affects your emotions. See, that very well can be a problem many people have in churches all across this world, but especially in America. They've got intellectual head knowledge, but that's all it is. And you don't even have the faith that maybe a demon has where you even would tremble at the very presence of God. That, that you would shudder at the presence of, of God. James is saying you might even have a, a faith that's substandard to the faith that demons have, to the belief that they have. Because they acknowledge in the, in the even, in the even tremble. Can I apply that in another way for a moment? I think based upon what James is saying, and, and please don't misunderstand me, I'm not against these things. I am not against someone raising their hand or both hands or whatever God tells them to do, as long as it's authentic when they're worshiping. I'm not against someone getting so filled up that they shout out or they run the aisle or whatever. I'm not against that as long as it's real and the person has real faith. But I will say this, just because you get emotional doesn't mean you have authentic faith. Because you can come to church, raise your hand, shout, run the aisles and everything else on Sunday and go out and live like the devil the rest of the week. And just having an emotional type of faith doesn't mean that, that you have real faith. So if intellectual faith by itself, just knowing head knowledge is not enough, and being emotional is not enough, how, how is real faith demonstrated? How, how do we really display our faith? What does real faith look like? James says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Some uh, Bible scholars feel like the way that's phrased in, in the Greek, that it sounds like someone is, is saying, all right, you have works and, uh, and I have faith. And both of those are two separate realities of Christianity, and it's okay for you to depend upon works, and it's okay for me just to depend upon faith, but that's not true at all. Those two things must be married together. Those two things come together. It's not like one can stand separate from the other. How, how do you how, how can someone see your faith if the only thing you have is head knowledge inside of you? How is that kind of faith demonstrated for anyone else to see whatsoever? The, the reason our faith and in, in our deeds cannot be separated, we've already seen it in, in Ephesians a moment ago. We, we're saved without works, but once we're saved, we're supposed to produce good works in our lives. 
Real faith, then, is demonstrated in a way for other people to see. You don't earn your salvation by demonstrating your faith, but because you have genuine faith in Jesus, then you've got a faith that will be demonstrated. That others will see, because you can't show it any other way. James kind of throws down the gauntlet. He throws down a challenge. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works, because faith without deeds, to be honest with you guys, cannot be seen. The world around us cannot see our faith unless we're demonstrating our faith through good deeds, through service, through ministry to others. Now, the flip side of it is this, and I, and I want to just mention it briefly. I don't have time to deal with it. The flip side of it is just as wrong. If you think you're earning your way to heaven by your good works, that doesn't work. That's not what James is saying. James is saying, if you have authentic faith, then it ought to show up in your life for other people to see. True faith, real faith involves something more than just intellectual knowledge. True faith involves something more than just your, just your emotions. What God desires for us to have is not a, a dead faith or a demonic type of faith. He desires for us to have a dynamic faith. A faith that's transformational. And that's what James closes out this section saying. You want to be shown, you foolish person. That's politically correct in this day and time, isn't it? Doing an interview with someone or something. Let me show you something, you idiot. That's pretty much what James just said. You want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. And you see that a person is justified, and he uses that word differently than Paul used it, but you see that a person is justified by, by works and not by faith alone. In other words, the kind of faith that is real faith is not words alone faith, it's faith that also has deeds attached to it. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers, the spies, and sent them out another way, protecting them, guarding their lives. So as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. God desires something more for us than just a faith that's based on words, the things that we say, or a faith that is, is just based on emotions. To, to get a clear understanding of the doctrinal stance of James, that James also believes that salvation is received by faith through grace. You have to go back to chapter 1 of the book of James. We've already read it. In chapter 1 of James, he said, of his own will, talking about God, of God's own will, of God's own grace, he brought us forth, he birthed us by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first 
fruits of his creatures. So if you want to look at the doctrinal stance of James, his doctrinal stance is you are also saved by the grace of God. He's not saying you're saved by works. He tells us early on in this epistle that we are saved by God's grace. He also tells us this in verse 21, that we receive the word of God and it saves us. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to do what? To save your souls. Paul said that, that faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the Word of God. So if you want to look at the doctrinal stance of James, the doctrinal stance of James is the same as Paul. You are saved by grace. You are saved by taking God in His Word, by believing the Word of God when it comes to what Jesus did for you on the cross. But the practical stance of James is what we're dealing with in, in this section of James that we're in. The practical stance to James is, is a stance of true saving faith leads to action in our lives. If we've got real faith, it will not be only intellectual or only emotional. Instead, true faith leads to obedience on the part of our will. It's where we are surrendering ourselves to God. You can't say it like this, true, true faith brings about a life change or a life transformed because Paul writes these words in 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Does not that mean that something's different, a, a new creation? If you go buy a new car, don't you hope there's something better about the new car than the old car? Don't you hope that maybe a car that has zero miles on it will be more dependable than one that had 250,000 miles on it? And maybe there's some updates and things like that that you can in enjoy? Well, sure, because it's new. Well, what does a new creature mean then, a new creation? If we trust Christ as our Savior... That means something changes. We, we become new creatures. The old things pass away. And the new has come. And all this is from God. It's not something that you get by polishing and cleaning yourself up. All this is from God who reconciled through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. In other words, God saves us. He changes us. And he gives us something to do. We're to be involved in helping other people to be reconciled by faith to our Heavenly Father. And James uses Abraham and Rahab as illustrations of saving faith. I hope you recognize those two people are pretty different. Abraham was a Jew. Rahab was a Gentile. Abraham was called a friend of God. Rahab was part of the enemies of God. Abraham, for the most part, was a godly man. Rahab was a prostitute. You see the uh, contrast, the difference between those? And yet, both of them heard God's word. Both of them believed God's word. And both of them acted upon God's word. And that's what James is trying to get us to see. 
Think about the, the dynamic transformational faith of Abraham for a moment. I, we don't have time to read all those verses. You can read them later. I'm just going to give you a quick history lesson of Abraham. Abraham was a heathen living in an area that worshipped idols in the earth of the Chaldees. He hears this God that he's never heard of before start to speak to him and tell him to take all of his family and his possessions and leave and go to a place that he's going to show him. God's not even telling him where he's going. Abraham hears God, believes God enough to act upon it, leaves, heads out looking for that place that God's going to show him. Later on, God says this to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless the whole world through your seed, through your bloodline. The only problem was Abraham was in old age, and so was his wife, Sarah, beyond the age of having children. But God told Abraham, I'm going to make your seed as numerable as the stars of the sky or the sand of the sea. And Abraham believed God, and the Bible said God counted it to him as righteousness. God gave him his own righteousness when he believed God. But then later on, Abraham's faith is culminated when he hears God say, take your son, that son of promise, your only son Isaac, take him up on the mountain and offer him to me as a sacrifice. And Abraham, in obedience, took his son up the mountain, tied his hands, put him on some wood, ready to offer him as a sacrifice, raised the knife, ready to do exactly what God told him to do. And we think, how horrible. But you see, Hebrews tells us this, that Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. That's why he was willing to do whatever God said. Because he believed that God had already promised him that that was his son of promise. So even if he killed him, he believed God enough to know that God would raise him up. God didn't want him to kill his son. God was just testing his faith. Pretty powerful faith, isn't it? Pretty big demonstration of the fact that you believe in him. Think about the transformational faith of Rahab for a second. As I said earlier, Rahab was a harlot. She was a prostitute. She lived in a heathen city by the name of Jericho. Spies had been sent into Jericho to figure out how to take the city. They come to her inn to stay. And people come looking for them. And she decides to hide the spies up on the rooftop. And then she has a conversation with the spies. And she said, we've heard about your God how your God brought you out of Egypt, how your God is bringing your nation, the people of Israel, through every nation here in this area, and God is wiping them out, and we're scared to death. Our hearts are melting in our chest. So Rahab heard a word from God, heard about God. She was emotional about it. She was scared to death of this God in the nation of Israel. But she had more than an intellectual faith, more than just an emotional reaction to it. She risked her own life to hide the spies. She listened to the instructions that they gave her to hang that scarlet cord in the window. And whenever they came to defeat the city of Jericho, they promised they would save her and her family alive. That scarlet cord is a type or a picture of the blood of Jesus. 
but she believed enough to act upon what she believed, even at the risk of her own life. You know what the ultimate story is on Rahab? (laughs) Matthew chapter 1. Don't be shocked, but there's a prostitute in the bloodline of Jesus. Thank God for grace. Amen. And she's also listed in the heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11. The point that James is making is that Moses or Rahab, either one, could have just had intellectual knowledge or some emotional knowledge, but they went beyond that to where what they heard and what they believed in their heart made a difference in their life and they acted upon it. That's the kind of faith that God wants us to have. He wants us to have the kind of faith that transforms the way we live. Not just knowing knowledge, you know, not just knowing facts about, uh, about God. Abraham, when he was told by God that, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to bless the whole world through your seed. The Bible said Abraham believed God, and it was counted him for righteousness. But then Abraham did not look at God and say, God, thank you for that promise. I'm about my own life. I'm going to go and live it the way I want to live it, and I'll see you later one day. Instead, Abraham spent his life serving God. Real faith for you is not hearing facts about Jesus and getting a little bit emotional about it and thinking, well, thank you, I'm on my way to heaven. I will see you one day. Real faith is you believing in God enough that it makes a difference in your life. Yes, you've got the intellectual knowledge. Yes, you've got emotional about it, but it means enough to change and transform your life. Let's pray. Father, God, if there's anyone here that's only God had knowledge, if there's anyone here that only has an intellectual acknowledgement of you or of Christ, God, help them to see this morning that just acknowledging you, just that, that that's, that's not enough. The, the demons acknowledge you. The demons know you. The demons have seen you. And they even tremble, but they, they've not trusted you. They've not given you their worship in their lives. They're not serving you. Father, I pray if there's anyone here that has made themselves comfortable in their eternity by just having head knowledge about you, I pray right now that you will make them uncomfortable. Maybe they've been emotional. Maybe they can come and worship and throw their hands up and, and then they go about day by day, week by week, living their life the way they want without any concern for feeling like they need to do anything for you or anything to serve others.
God, help them to see that you want their faith to be dynamic, that you want their lives to be transformed. Father, I pray you give them the boldness right now in a moment as we start this invitation. If they have serious doubts based upon your word that they're not right with you, Father, give them the boldness and the faith to step forward and make sure. Lord, for those of us that without any doubt know that our faith is in you and that it's real, But, Father, we, we're not being transformed to the degree that you would desire. We're not surrendering our will to you to the degree that you desire. Father, forgive us and, and help, help us transform our lives to be all that you want our lives to be. Pass these things in the name of Christ. Amen. I realize this is different, but today this is part of the invitation. And I think you see why, based upon the scriptures that we've looked at. Because you indeed may be someone that's had head knowledge, you've believed facts about Jesus, and maybe even you get emotional about it, chill bumps and everything else. But you've never done anything to serve him or serve others. Then the invitation for you today is to consider coming up and signing up for some of these ministry groups that will happen on May the 3rd and Operation In as much. Or to come up and, and sign up if you're not yet for the Relay for Life or for helping with South Caldwell Christian Ministries or for helping with these quarters that's going to be distributed to people in laundry mats that need to hear about Jesus and probably need some financial help. That's part of the invitation today. During the song, I invite you to come up and commit, make a commitment to serve in some way. And if for some reason you're afraid that your faith has just been all head knowledge and it's not really saving faith, that all you've done is believe facts, the demons believe facts about Jesus, but they've not really trusted him, and they're not living for him, then I'll also be here during this time if you need to come up and, and we'll talk some about that. Please stand as God speaks to your heart. We invite you to come. Thanks for listening to this sermon audio production from Day 3 Church. We pray that it has ministered to you. For more information about our location, service times, or other sermon podcasts, please visit us online at day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life.